This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill. Last week, we concluded a special NPR podcast series, White Lies. This week, we follow up with the show's co-host, Andrew Grace, on works in progress and get a behind-the-scenes account of the making of the series. And we'll hear a captivating work of prose by Sundial Writers Corner contributor and Huntsville Literary Association Young Writers Contest winner, Calvin Ingstrom. First, Huntsville Hospital CEO David Spiller sat down with me, both of us masked and six feet apart, for an update on the challenges we continue to face in the battle against COVID-19. He says a big part of the challenge is we are trying to learn about the SARS-CoV-2 virus as we go, and early computer models did not have enough data to be accurate. I think the early models never took into consideration that we were going to eliminate stay-at-home orders and those types of things. I think everything about the models changed when we tried to go back to a normal life. We, we quit masking, we quit social distancing, and I don't think any model anticipated that we would, people would be having parties at uh, Memorial Day and Fourth of July and that they would totally disregard any request to social distance or wear a mask and those types of things. And I think we're seeing the impact of those now. So on a more personal note, in the duration of this pandemic, the lockdown, the businesses reopening up a bit, have you personally felt more or less at ease going anywhere beyond home or work and why or why not? Ever since March when this started, I've tried to be very careful who I was around. My wife and I are the sole caregivers for my 90-year-old mother who doesn't live with us, but there's no one else to take care of her. So I always took a very cautious approach to who I was around and when I wore a mask and those types of things. It hasn't changed when we, whether we were in the lockdown or when we went back out of the lockdown, I continue to try to follow the same, what I think are common sense ways to try to keep from catching a virus because we all knew it was still out there. Um, But my life's changed just like everybody else's. I mean, I, I, I work. That's one difference is we never quit working. As a matter of fact, our work has been far more intense during the pandemic than, than most people. But, you know, I get up and I, I go to the gym and I work out and I wear a mask and I come to work and, and I go home and I, I don't go out. I don't go out to, to restaurants. I don't go out on the weekends. I'm, I go to the grocery store, but I'm very careful when I do. So, you know, not nearly as much social interaction as before the pandemic. I miss that. Uh, but uh, I think it's the right thing to do based upon where we are right now. So you said that you and your wife are caring for your mother, who is at a very uh, susceptible age to contract the virus. What sort of other challenges have you run into um, caring for her during this time of COVID-19? We were were lucky and blessed. I had just moved my mother from a single-family home to a patio home that had no exterior maintenance and no reason for her to be outside messing around. And for the first two months she was there, she never even cared about going outside because she was unpacking and doing the things you do when you move to a new house. We've been able to manage this fairly well because she is very comfortable in her new place. She's not around other people. Um, the area that she's in is, a, is not an assisted living facility, but it is most of the people there are 55 and over, and all of them are being very careful. So there's not a lot of social interaction and so forth. I've tried to explain to her what grocery stores looked like when we just started the pandemic and she could not comprehend walking into a grocery store and not being able to buy toilet paper and paper towels, right? Because it's just, you know, she grew up, she's 90 years old, she grew up, you know, right, right around a depression. So she had seen some pretty hard times. She didn't, she didn't think we'd ever get back to those types of things in grocery stores. So I've had to explain that to her as, as things have uh, developed with the pandemic. In your opinion, do you believe that April was a reasonable time for Alabama to begin the reopening process I think that Alabama and the entire country could not stay in lockdown forever. I'm concerned today about the money that the federal government has put into keeping us from collapsing economically and whether we will ever recover from that, particularly our children, the younger generation. We had reached a point where we had to start allowing businesses to open up and the economy to come back. I wish when we had opened the economy, we had actually asked everybody to mask If there was one simple thing to do, masking, it works. If we had opened up, we had done masking, people had continued to social distance, 
and done what we were asking people to do from, from an interaction standpoint, I don't think we would be where we are right now. So now we are two weeks past the July 4th holiday weekend. Um, as predicted, cases of COVID spiked. So should people be concerned by the numbers that they're seeing after that weekend? And can you tell us, is there a sort of average time that it takes for people to start seeing that downward trend after a major holiday or something like that? So generally the spike following the holidays about 10 to 14 days after the holiday. We saw it in Memorial Day. We, we were seeing it 4th of July. Between Memorial Day and 4th of July, it never went down. There's not really recovery. It's not like it went down and came back up. It, it was at a level and then we just moved the, the level up again at the 4th of July. The last couple of days, the numbers across our healthcare system are flat. We see that as a huge win. I mean, it didn't go up, so we're, we're, we hope that we're starting to plateau. Everywhere in the country where they've had COVID, you know, what I'll call a crisis in a particular area, it'll go to a certain level and it seems to plateau. Whether that's because people all of a sudden start paying attention and doing what they're supposed to be doing, or whether that's some nature of the disease is kind of infected the people who are highly susceptible, I don't know. I think the combination of the numbers going up, looking like we're plateauing before the masking's really had an effect. I don't think masking has had an effect yet. I think masking, the impact of masking is still a week to two weeks, three weeks down the road. I would hope by that time, we've definitely been in a plateau and we may even see a little trickle down. I think the new normal with us is we're going to always have COVID patients until there's a, 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 a vaccine. I just don't see any way around that. It just goes away. And there have been viruses in the past that just all of a sudden they just went away. I don't anticipate that. We can't plan for that because that's not, not the way you plan when you got to take care of people's lives. We're assuming we're going to continue to have COVID for a long period of time. We would like for the numbers to be lower than they are. At the numbers we have now, they have a, a little bit of a negative impact on the system and our ability to do the things we need to do, particularly when you look at the number of employees that are getting COVID in the community now. It just impacts our ability to staff. So I'd love to see them go down. I'd love to see them half what they are today, even even lower, as low as possible. And then I'd like to see them uh, not go back up, you know, kind of plateau for a while. That'd be welcome to see that. We would be welcome to see that. So talking on the vaccine, do you believe that the vaccine is sort of a starting point, and if it is, in your opinion, what more needs to be done after we do have that vaccine? An effective vaccine is probably the only thing that really gets this under control. So we need an effective vaccine, and the sooner we get it, the better. What we also need are treatments for this virus. We have some things that we use that are reasonably effective, but until we get a vaccine, which could be a year away, it would be ideal to have something like we have for the flu, where we have Tamiflu and things like that that help reduce the severity and reduce the length of, of the illness so that it has less impact on people and their families and the economy and everything else. But uh, no, the vaccine's what we need. I mean, and that's everybody's kind of hanging their hopes on a vaccine. Second to the vaccine, more treatments for people so that they recover from this quickly. A lot of people have been asking you about enforcement of the laws, and there haven't been measures in place up until now to enforce those laws. I know there is an educational effort focus for law enforcement, um, but there is that supplemental jail time, $500 fine. With that supplemental consequence, do you think that would inspire more compliance with people masking and perhaps decrease positive cases of COVID-19? So one, I have no doubt that, that masking will decrease the spread of disease. When you work in a hospital, you realize how important masking is. I've debated this with some people and I said, okay, well, next time you're in the hospital and you have surgery, we'll just tell everybody in the OR not to wear a mask and see how, see how that works out for you. It won't work out very well. You'll get infected and all those types of things. So it, it, there, it has an impact. You know, it was easy for me to come out early and say, I believe we need masking because I didn't have to enforce it. I recognize that it's difficult for the politicians and the police and everybody else to police this and to enforce it. I think when you make it mandatory, though, you eventually, the peer pressure, people who may not have worn a mask and may have said, no, I, I, I don't think this is the right thing to do, when they see everybody else go, oh, okay, well, I can wear a mask. In the end, I do think that, you know, there's always some segment of the population that refuses to do everything. There'll be some sheriff that says, hey, I'm not enforcing it. 
and uh, we'll just have to see how that experiment works. But I think, by and large, most people will follow the rules, as most people do, even if they don't like them. Uh, I don't like speed limits at 55, but I pay attention to them, right? And I think people, I think people will do that with masking, and the people who choose not to will be a, a small percentage of people. So as CEO of Huntsville Hospital, you've had to make some tough choices for your business, like stopping elective procedures for a certain amount of time, for lowering some staff. What would you say some of the common challenges are that you're hearing from other business leaders um, while searching for a balance between health safety and a successful economy? Two things come to mind, whether it be our hospital system or anybody running a business that make things difficult right now. One is inevitably you're going to have employees who test positive. That creates a whole host of issues. A shortage of staff, if they test positive in your restaurant or your, your your organization, you have to do all the testing of the other people, and you may have to have some people sit out on the sidelines for a few days to see if they develop any of the, the virus. So staffing and running any business right now is difficult. At the same time, whether it be the hospital or a restaurant or, or most other businesses, there are a few exceptions. I think the home improvement stores and things that gear towards people doing stuff outside or seeing normal business, but I think everybody else is seeing fewer people come in the door than they would typically see. So you got all these human resource issues, you got the cost of staffing, and then you don't have enough people coming in the door generating the revenue. That's that's a difficult. That's it's difficult for us. It's difficult for people running other businesses in the community now. Feel for them. All the more reason to let's mask and get this thing behind us so people can get back to normal. So overall, what would you say our likeliest outcomes are if people do heed the the mask mandate and follow those guidelines? If people will mask. And also social distance. I think people have to be careful. If, if you're with family members, you generally let your guard down, right? You have a little neighborhood party and it's just a couple of, you know, just a, a few people, over 10 or 12 people, you tend to let your guard down. But you still need to keep some distance from each other. And if people would do those things, then we will be able to control the outbreaks that pop up. And they're going to pop up. It's, like I said, it's not going away till we get a, a vaccine. But we will see less spread. We'll see fewer people in the community who have covid we will be better able to react to the hot spots when they pop up because there won't be so many of them. If everything's a hot spot, there's just not enough resources to go around. Right now, it's hard to do any community control because there's so much of it in the community. You can't focus your resources on one area to try to try to put it out. I know that in the COVID briefings for the Huntsville area, you've expressed your concern for testing shortages, but I know that you have tried to get out into the community, into the nooks and crannies of the community to make sure everybody has access to testing. Can you talk about those efforts and how they'll continue from now on? Of the many things I'm proud of during the pandemic that our team has done, community testing is right at the top of the list. We looked at the data early on. It's what was going on in other countries and how they were controlling the spread, and testing was, was a significant component of that, knowing how many people have COVID, knowing who has COVID, et cetera. So we established these drive-through clinics in our flu and fever clinic, and we used our mobile medical unit, and we went out and started doing testing anywhere and everywhere. Nobody else was doing that in this community. No other health system around was doing that. Really, no other health system in the state was doing that as early as we did. Nobody's done as much of that as we have. We ended up eventually getting a lot of capacity in our hospital to do the testing, but as we got that capacity, we saw an increase in the number of inpatients, so we started using that testing capacity of our inpatients. We contract or work with outside labs to do testing in the community. We will continue to do testing in the community, and we'll use those outside labs so that we save our resources for the emergency room patients and the inpatients and our employees and physicians, and we'll continue to test as long as there's a need. Right now, we're pretty consumed with the drive through clinic at John Hunt Park and our flu and fever clinic. Uh, they're seeing together about 800 patients a day. Uh, once that slows down a little bit, I expect we'll take our mobile medical unit back out and start doing remote testing in, in areas where people need to be tested and they can't drive where we're doing testing now. The downside of us not being able to do testing in-house is sometimes those results are five days, six days, even seven days because labs nationwide are backed up. Probably the biggest irritant for me throughout this process is we have the lab equipment to run hundreds, even thousands test today, but the manufacturers will not give us enough material to run the test in-house. And our tests are, we can do it in hours. 
So you don't have to tell people, go quarantine for a week, and we'll, then we'll tell you if you got COVID. Who wants to quarantine for a week when they don't even know if they got COVID? And a lot of people don't comply. If we had quick turnaround testing that was very accurate, then I think, I think we would be doing a better job controlling the virus. The last thing on testing is there's been a lot of tests made available in the, few, in the last few weeks that were not available early on. We use what's called a PCR test. Uh, it's a very accurate test, whether it tells you you're positive or negative. It's accurate both ways. There are a lot of tests out there. It's called an antigen test that are very good. If it says you are positive, then you are positive. If it says you are negative, most of them still have a 20% probability that you're positive. While it's better than nothing, we have seen people take tests that were less reliable, get a negative and say, I'm well, and then two days later they develop symptoms, and no, they really weren't. They had it. It just didn't pick it up. And in those two days, they've infected 10 or 15 other people. So caution people to be very careful. If you're sick and you get a negative test, you probably need to stay quarantined and get tested again in a couple of days. Talking on the numbers of COVID-positive patients that are reported by the Department of Public Health, I hear from some people that they see the adjustments that they have to make sometimes to those numbers, and they might say that those numbers are inflated or uh, might say that they're inaccurate, so that's why they don't trust the numbers and think that it might be blown out of proportion. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think the numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health are close to accurate, and I say close to accurate because they are dependent upon every lab company that runs tests and every hospital that runs tests and every physician office that runs tests, and I could just keep going down the list, every urgent care, submitting data to them that they then load into their system and then they share it. And that has to happen every single day. The numbers on the weekend, people aren't sending that stuff in. So you'll see a big spike every Monday, particularly Tuesdays, have always got big spikes because you're getting information from the weekend. So we have never looked at the daily numbers. We've always looked at the five-day average. What's going on over the last five days, maybe seven days, and then look at 14 days. We also, because we have done so much testing, and we have every bit of our data, we know what percent are positive, and et cetera, et cetera. We've, and we've done enough of it that we can see our trends with our own data without relying on the state's data. The Alabama Department of Public Health data is not perfect. But it's just a pretty, if you, if you just look at the five or seven day average, it's a pretty good proxy for what's going on in the state. Huntsville Hospital is now providing an online resource where people can check out those statistics that you mentioned on COVID-19 for the hospital system. That is on the Huntsville Hospital website and Facebook page. So can you tell us what information on the virus will folks find and how often will it be updated? Yeah, the information that's now available on our, our website and our social media pages is information that people were asking us for. Every day I get a report. I get a report that tells me how many patients we've got in the bed, how many people are in ICUs, how many people tested positive the previous day, both here and in all of our hospitals across the system. And we want people to know what's going on. We want people to see the real data. We've got no reason to inflate the data, hide the data, or anything else. So we just decided to start making it publicly, particularly in a graphic form, so people could see the trend lines. And our goal is just to communicate what we're seeing and, and let people make their own decisions about what's going on in the community. There's a group of people who aren't taking this seriously. I wish they would. Changing your lifestyle just a little bit now could help a lot of other people. There's a group of people that are thoroughly depressed because they see no end to this. None of us see an end to it. We don't know when it's going to end. Eventually, we'll get control of this. Eventually, we will come out of this. So I would tell both sides, one side, pay attention, help us get out of this. And I'll tell the other side, we're going to get out of this eventually. It's not going to be easy. Talking to, to some young people the other day, and, and, and I think they were like 19 or 20, they were talking about how bad this is, and their lifestyle's been cramped. And I, said, and I started thinking, my dad, at 17, landed on Iwo Jima. That's an imposition. This is a nuisance. We'll get past it. That was Huntsville Hospital CEO David Spillers sharing an update on our COVID-19 challenges, as well as both our successes and failures. This is member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway. If you've tuned into this program over the past seven weeks, we hope you've enjoyed the thrilling series from NPR's investigations team called White Lies, which investigates one of the most significant unsolved murders from the civil rights era. In 1965, the Reverend James Reeb was murdered in Selma, Alabama. Three men were tried and acquitted. 
But 50 years later, two Alabama journalists dug in to expose a widespread conspiracy that caused Reeb's case to remain unsolved. One of those journalists is Huntsville resident Andrew Grace, who also produced the 2012 documentary Eating Alabama. Andrew joins us on the program now. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you and your co-host and co-creator Chip Brantley uh, chose to delve into the unsolved case of the murder of Reverend James Reeb for White Lies. And I read that a certain conspiracy is what initially intrigued you guys. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So when we first started digging into the story and started visiting Selma, trying to understand, you know, what what had happened with the Reeb case and how there had been this acquittal and what the sort of longstanding generational repercussions of this crime and and then the investigation and then the acquittal, what they had had, uh, what what effect they had had on Selma, we pretty quickly discovered that a lot of people in Selma believed that uh, the murder of Reeb was actually not committed by local ruffians, but was actually committed by the civil rights movement itself, that Reeb had, had been a part of an attack there on Washington Street, but that the actual injury that caused his death was committed by civil rights activists in need of a white mark. To, to further their cause. Um, and the story sounded so outlandish to us uh, and flew against basically everything that we knew about civil rights history and the character of the people who were uh, coordinating the civil rights movement um, that it seemed hard to understand how and why people might believe something like that. Um, and that was, I think, the moment when we realized we were onto a story that actually had some pretty unique, um, maybe even broader than Selma and maybe even broader than Alabama, uh, kind of connotations for, for the way that we think about race and the way that we think about uh, the, the otherness of people um, in, in America. So I think that was what really drew us to the story was that while it happened in Selma and it was this kind of localized story, there were much broader uh, strains of American history playing through, playing through what happened there. Right. And White Lies is an investigative long-form piece. Um, those tend to take up to months and years. So I wonder for White Lies, how long did it take to complete the series and uh, when and where did you start? Well, we actually started in the fall of 2014, believe it or not. We were interested in um, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which was going to be in the spring of, or really in the, I guess, late summer of 2015. And knowing that Selma had played such a pivotal role in the voting rights struggle, um, and the, the, of course, Bloody Sunday being a big part of that, we thought, well, maybe we'll go down to Selma and try to see if there's a story there that will coincide. And I don't think we had any, I know we didn't have any designs on, on the amount of time and the effort that we spent on the story that we ended up telling, but that was sort of the the initial thing. And once we discovered the Reeb story and realized that while Chip and I both grew up in Alabama and are from there and our families are from there, it just wasn't a story that we knew really anything about. And that was kind of curious to us because then we started wondering, well, what, what it is about this particular murder that happened here that hasn't risen to the level uh, that, that we would have even really been aware of. I mean, for instance, I knew about the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson and Marion, which was this sort of inciting incident for Bloody Sunday, but I'd never really heard, and I knew about Viola Liuzzo too, but I'd never really heard the, the Reeb story. And I think largely it was due to this sort of conspiracy theory and the complicated narrative that came out of out of the trial that sought to basically blame, blame the movement for Reeb's death instead of the, the people who actually committed the murder. Um, and so I think when, once we realized that that was, that there was this kind of counter, what we call the counter narrative that was happening in Selma, um, that's when we really wanted to sort of dig in and see what we could do. And we also had an unredacted FBI file, which was an incredible document that allowed us to track down witnesses and find people, um, sort of triangulate who was there on the street that night. And, and so all of that took quite a long time. We got with NPR about a year and a half before the show was released. So we worked on it in 2014 and 2015 and then worked on some other stuff together while still kind of supporting the story. And then once NPR got involved, we really worked on it hard for a year and a half or so before it was released. Mm -hmm. And beyond you and Chip, of course, you had a team behind you of producers mm -hmm. and editors. Can you tell us about those folks? Yeah, so we, we had a producer at NPR, Graham Smith, um, who was wonderful and helped us a great deal in all of our researching and, and sort of dealing with, with uh, documents and dealing with sources and figuring out how to navigate the kind of NPR channels too, which was its own kind of 
unique experience for us. Um, and then in Alabama, we had Connertown O'Neill, who's was actually he had began as a graduate student of both Chip and I's because we teach at the university. Um, but that was years ago, and he had, has subsequently become one of our most important collaborators. And so Connor was uh, was part of our team in Alabama and did a lot of reporting for the show, um, especially for the fifth episode, which is really focuses on Mary and Connor did almost all the reporting for that show and, all, and interviewed all those folks and helped a lot in the writing. So he was really indelible. And then we were embedded with the investigations unit at NPR. So our editor, Bob Little, um, and then we had Nicole Beamsterboer, who was a part of that as well. And then we had a wonderful researcher, um, Barbara Van Workham. So we've, we we had a great team um, and Kat Shuknick, who came along as well. So there was a bunch of folks in D.C. who were supporting us. And we frequently would travel up there during the creation of the show and, and the writing and the we recorded the entire show at, at the headquarters of NPR there in DC. So it was it was a really it was a great experience working with NPR. And in your research for Reeb's case, you of course had to interview tons of people, uh, many of which who actually were alive to see the civil rights movement in action. Um, and you also talked to the people who were against it. So out of all the conversations that you had, which story would you say would stay with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, there the kinds of characters that we encountered. You know, we encountered white folks who were hostile to the civil rights movement even to this day, and hostile to a narrative of racial violence and racial in, in, injustice, which I think uh, many Americans are are starting to to rethink some of their feelings about the the history of racial violence in this country. And Selma is a prime focal point for the sort of tortured memory of the American South in many ways, because, of course, Bloody Sunday happened there, but also one of the largest uh, munitions of the Confederacy was there. One of the last battles of the Civil War was the the Battle of Selma. I mean, this was an important place in civil rights history and in civil war history. And so there's um, there's a kind of bifurcated memory in Selma in many ways. Um, But in terms of your question, I mean, I think, you know, we talked to folks who were very hostile to the movement, but also had certain attributes that reminded us of of white Southerners that we grew up with, family members or friends, and of, you know, our grandparents' generation, basically. Um, people that whose who's cadences of speech and, and ways of, say, of having their sayings and the ways of telling stories reminded us in kind of endearing ways of our families. Um, but then also the thinking about how some of the ideas they were spreading and, and the things that they believed so fervently were really distasteful. So I think from the white community, those those I'll never forget those kinds of conversations with people who um, who I felt endeared to on a personal level because they reminded me of people I knew, but also I felt just very um, troubled for because they, they themselves had such um, broken and, and kind of painful visions of, of our history, which were not true, basically. Um, but I mean, I think one of my favorite characters in the whole show is Joanne Bland, this African-American woman who was on the bridge. Uh, she was 11 years old during Bloody Sunday and um, is still living in Selma and does sort of civil rights tourism work. But she is such a fascinating character and just has it kind of became a sort of moral voice for us in, in telling the story. And every time we thought something or wanted to confirm something, we could call Joanne and she would kind of give us a gut check about whether or not we were on our... She really helped, as two white boys, basically, she really helped us orient um, our thinking on a lot of these issues and and has remained a, a wonderful friend and advisor. And you did say that there were some people who sort of slammed their door in your face. Uh, they were sort of reluctant to talk with you. Um, how were you able to turn some of those minds around? Uh, like Francis Bowden, for instance, who saw yeah. the attack firsthand of, of James Reeb. Yeah, I don't know that we turned her mind so much as we convinced her to finally talk to us. I think that was the main thing. Yeah. She I think we, you know, I would I'll I'll credit Chip here. Chip is uh I I think that I am nice and warm towards people, but Chip is very nice and warm towards people and has a very disarming and very kind and considerate way of of being around people and he's he's very good at remembering to ask up on on so and so that you told us about the last time we were here and none of that is put on that's just his personality he's a really wonderful and kind person but i think that in the south especially which is where he learned this to begin with is you know his, his mother taught him this basically um is uh it it's goes a long way um and the fact that we were southerners we were from there you know i live in tuscaloosa and chip lives in birmingham and we could speak a sort of common language about alabama football for instance or sec football more generally and and the ways that that those kinds of shared cultural 
uh, touchstones for for white Southerners, especially, uh, are are something that we could traffic in, and I think make people feel as though we were we were really after the story here, and not after some kind of exploitative fly-by-night journalism where you just drop in and and get the story and then leave. Um, that said, I mean, I think a lot of people that talk to us maybe wish they hadn't talked to us. Um, you know, probably were we're unaware of the degree to which we were going to criticize the the ways that this story has been told over the years and and interrogate that. We heard back from a few people. I mean, generally speaking, the the, the response in Selma has been really, really good. Um, I don't think that Frances Bowden wants us to visit her again. But outside of that, I think that the response has been really, um, really good. It's been really uh, people, uh, black folks, of course, have, have really appreciated the way that the story takes seriously the, the way that they understand their history. And I think a lot of white people in Selma have have come to realize, especially a younger generation, that this history, reckoning and dealing with this history is vitally important to the future of that city. And using the the fact that that history happened on their soil, using that to their advantage is something that I think a lot of young white Selmians are trying to figure out how how to sort of grapple with. Um, and so, you know, there's some, some of those folks that we got to know during the show, and we were initially concerned how they might respond to the show. Not that I think it's unfair by any means, but it's always hard to hear somebody talk. Look, as an Alabamian, I know this. It's hard to hear somebody from outside the place you're from to talk about what it means to be from the place you're from. Um, but I think, by and large, those folks really thought that we did that we did a, a justice to the story and, and have appreciated and supported the show. So that's been really nice. We've even talked about doing a, a live event there in Selma at some point. So your ultimate goal, as you said earlier in the interview, your ultimate goal was to sort of shed light on the community in Selma that kept secrets and spread lies for decades to hide the truth of what happened to James Reeb. If just one person like uh, Francis Bowden had come forward with the truth sooner, you know, after Reeb died, do you think that justice would have come for him or that the series may not have been necessary to make? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one is a historical question, which is what would have happened had someone really seen it and told the truth? And I, the evidence from the trial is that uh, it didn't. It didn't really matter what got said at the trial because there were certain, there were certain ways uh, that that story got crafted by really everyone. I mean, the prosecutor as much as the defense attorney um, to to result in an acquittal. I think we talked to a journalist from the New York Times who remembers having a phone call with the prosecutor who said he had zero case before the trial started. And the reporter said, well, why did you even why did you even try to why did you even go to a grand jury then? And he said, because if I didn't, you guys, meaning the media, would have hounded us. So at least I I got, you know, I got a I got a true bill at the grand jury so that we could take this to trial. But I have no intention of winning this case. Um, and so that's you know, that that was pretty stacked against them. Uh, the, to the other question about whether or not a story would be worth telling. I, I don't know. I mean, if if Alabama had done right in these moments, if we as as white Southerners had chosen to take responsibility for our actions and not tell ourselves lies about about who we are and 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 what these what these historical moments meant and what their ramifications were and why for instance black people were willing to be beaten on the foot of the Edmund Pettus bridge um if we would have been able to be truthful about that then no I don't think our show would have needed to exist um but but you know there's there are a lot of there are a lot of incidents in American history where we we tell ourselves about our virtues and when you dig down a little bit you see that there's a lot of hostility toward toward being truthful with our past and and it's a painful past again I'm I am a southerner myself I understand how hard this history is um but it's it's something I think that's really important to do and since the show has come out I feel like that belief that we had in making the show has been validated by the protests in response to George Floyd's death and and the sort of renewed awareness of how much a racial reckoning is really needed to to have a harmonious and prosperous country in the future. Um, so that's that has been uh, very heartening in certain ways for us to see after having made this show. And talking on uh, future projects for you for the show, uh, you mentioned maybe a live show when everything is you know back to normal, so to speak, or maybe you know when things are better. Can you describe? If there's any new series you're working on or any other projects uh, related to White Lies or maybe similar to White Lies? Yeah, we um, we were working on a second season of White Lies. It's not a civil rights story, but a story that also involves Alabama. And I can't really 
give too many details about it, but we were in the we were in the early process of working on that when uh, when COVID happened. And as I mentioned a minute ago, this is a very difficult time to report. And actually, this particular story requires some international travel, which is hard to imagine right now. So we are kind of we're sort of nursing that along as we as we navigate the future of of uh, what this is going to look like. I will say though that um, podcasting is is uh, still doing really well, um, despite all the downturn of commutes and everything, which I know has been really trying for for NPR, um, having lost the, tr- the drive-time commute listenership. I just read the other day on NPR's own website about the, the troubling kind of financial future for a means of broadcast that's premised around being in the car basically um but podcasts have figured out how to how to sort of hang on so and npr is enthusiastic about doing another another season so we're hopeful that we'll start working on that soon if anybody listening right now would be interested in learning more about the event of james reeb's attack and the aftermath the the court cases everything like that what sort of resources would you point those folks to 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 learn more beyond the podcast yeah there's actually um our team at npr and part of our team but also part of the 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 graphic design and and digital side of of npr built this incredible website which has actually won an award or two um at this point that was a companion piece to to the show um and on that website you can not only see a sort of a lot of photographs of the folks we talked to and, and a visual record of the storytelling, but also there's a research section where you can dig into some of the primary documents, the FBI files and the, the things that we got from the National Archives. Um, so if you're interested in looking at the work, I think it's called the Reporter's Notebook or something, we can go there and, and see a lot of the primary sources that we used and maybe dig in a little bit to to the story itself and how how the feds investigated it, what the what the state authorities did and, and the way that those things intersected. Um, so if you're interested in seeing that stuff, it's there on the web. And uh, I don't, I think it's White Lies. If you Google White Lies in NPR, you'll find it. I can't remember the exact web address. Um, but it's it should be easy to find. And it's a very beautiful website. I'm really proud of the folks who worked on it. They worked very hard on it. We'll have the links Andrew mentioned posted on our podcast page for tonight's Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org. Or you can go to NPR.org and search for White Lies. Thanks for tuning in tonight. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we hope that you are staying happy and healthy. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, please share them on our Facebook page, our website, or use the public microphone on our mobile app. We'll close the show tonight with a visit to our Sundial Writer's Corner for a story written by Calvin Ingstrom. He's one of this year's winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's annual Young Writers Contest. Here he reads his bone-chilling tale, The Black Earth. In the plains of southern Minnesota, in the grip of a winter night, the wind crept along the ground toward a thicket. Though the sky was clear and no snow fell, the gusts, carried with them pulsing tendrils of fine frost, held barely aloft that gave body to the wind. Between bent and stunted trees it slithered until parting around the little red cottage in the thicket. The wind whistled and hissed in the eaves, and a sign hanging above the door was thrown about by the gales. The land is kind, read the sign. It knocked softly and steadily on the doorframe. Kaisa struck a match carefully, and lit a single candle, and the budding flame danced in the draft that ran through the room. Has it always been like this in the winter? she asked. Grandmother smiled and poured herself more tea with a shaking hand. They sat at the dining table, watching the snow soar over the ground outside. Beyond the barn and a couple lonesome birches, the fields stretched toward darkness. Thump. Thump came the knock of the sign outside, and the picture frames on the shelves rattled each time the gusts crescendoed. Like what, dear? Kaisa shivered and breathed into her palms. Restless. It always seemed so peaceful when I was little. Now all I can think about is the cold and the wind. She paused, listening to its sibilant howl. Doesn't it seem like it's whispering something? The old woman set down her tea. You're definitely not the first person to hear voices in this wind, Kaisa, she said quietly, barely audible over the din. But it's been a long time since they've actually said anything. Said anything, Kaisa repeated. 
yet Grandmother seemed not to hear her. She had turned her attention to a picture on the high shelf. In the frame stood Ebba, Kaisa's mother and Grandmother's only child. She leaned against a tractor and smiled, despite the muck on her overalls and the sweat on her brow. She was laughing at something behind the camera. Your mother was about as old as you are now when she came back to help with the farm, the old woman began. She returned from college and brought your father, Carl, and you were born not long after that. And now you're coming back to take over. The wheel just keeps turning, I suppose. The wind faltered briefly, and the sign outside stopped its clamor. A relative silence fell uncomfortably over the cottage. No rattling picture frames or window panes. No hushed voices on the night air. The wind laid the snow down to rest on the fields, and Kaisa mulled over the thought of living her days out on the prairie, just as her mother had chosen to. How did Mom die? Grandmother started, having nearly drifted off to sleep. What did you say? Kaisa met the woman's gaze and asked again, How did Mom die? You said you would tell me when I was older. A moment of frigid silence passed. Grandmother glanced at the picture, then out toward the dark horizon beyond the barn. She saw something that Kaisa could not. It started when the wind picked up again. Your mother had been back for a year. You were just born, and winter was coming fast. Carl, well, he'd never seen a winter in the countryside. A city boy he was, raised in Minneapolis, where he and Ebba went to college. After graduation, they got hitched and moved to the farm. But Ebba had to pester and prod for months until that man of hers finally agreed to come, stubborn as a mule he was. He probably knew what was good for him, though. Soon after he got here, I could tell that he wasn't made for this life. His thumb was as black as coal, and every plant he tended to rotted before we could save it. Even the lilacs, the morning glories, the honeysuckle, your mother's precious flowers. None of them made it through Ebba and Carl's first spring on the farm. That spring was also quiet. Fewer birds in the mornings, fewer bees in the afternoons, the loons never sang on the pond. Other animals grew nervous, too. The cat hissed at him, and Nanny, the old dairy cow, once kicked him hard when he walked behind her. Broke his leg, she did, and we drove him to the hospital in Mankato. Ebba sobbed and sobbed, blubbering that it was her fault that they'd come to the farm, and that no-good man of hers... What did he do after murdering the lilac bushes his wife picked from when she was no taller than my hip, after taking the morning glories from her mornings? He agreed with her, told her that this land was no place for a man to live. Oh, he was poison, Kaisa. He was arsenic in the water, seeping into the soil and killing off the summer. Harvest time brought a poor crop, and the days grew ever shorter. Carl's leg was almost healthy again, but he moaned and complained and thwacked the dogs good with his crutches if they got in his way. Ebba seemed not to mind him, though, because she'd just met you, her beautiful little Kaisa. Not that you got near as much attention from your father, though, that great loaf of a hypochondriac. Yet to Ebba, you were sweeter than all the flowers in Eden. She imagined you in a couple years' time, swimming in the pond and stargazing with her at night. You were her angel. You shined so brightly that she seemed to forgive the world its every vice. Not even Carl bothered her anymore, and I smiled every time I saw you both together. The scene always reminded me of Ebba when she was a girl, walking with me through the cornfields in the morning and doing cartwheels in the mud. You kept her warm as winter came, but your father had nothing to thaw his soul. He grew restless as the sunset arrived earlier and earlier every evening. He felt trapped in this house, so far from the city and the people and the noise. I thought it was funny when you mentioned how loud the wind is, because Carl thought it was painfully quiet. He didn't know how we could bear the weight of such a silence. Once, after Ebba put you to sleep and went to bed herself, Carl and I sat up late on a night not unlike this one. We were in the living room while the wind shook the window panes and screamed about the eaves. Carl was becoming an insomniac, and he jumped in his chair every time the gales picked up or the cabinets rattled. They kept blowing and blowing, but I've learned not to heed them. They're no threat. I know the land here won't hurt me. Then he leapt up and cried, What was that? What was... I began, Shh, be quiet. He stalked toward the window and peered out. Listen. I only heard the wind, the same wind that filled every winter night. 
I stared at him, and I remember his hands curled into fists and the shaky breaths he took. He wouldn't rip his eyes from something in the distance. There, he whispered. Did you hear it? Someone's in the fields. I carefully approached him. I don't hear anything, Carl. It's just the wind. Shut up. I heard it. Clear as day. His lip trembled, and he pressed a hand against the cold glass of the window. He stood there, still and cold as the frozen earth. The cottage was seldom so frigid. They're calling for help. Oh, God, they're out there. No one is out there, Carl. But it was too late. He ran. He went to the back door, and the wind hurled it open as soon as he turned the handle. Then he was out the door, off into the fields. I heard him. His voice carried back faintly on the night air. I'm coming. Stay there. I'm coming. He ran and ran and ran, the billowing streams of snow curling around him, ensnaring him, until the night took him. I didn't hear his voice ever again, only the hiss of the wind. His coat and scarf were still hanging on the rack beside the door. The next morning, we set out in the pickup to look for him. We took you with us, bundled up tight in blanket after blanket, so we could keep an eye on you, and Ebba held you close while I drove. She wouldn't look away from you, not wanting to think of anything else, I reckon. She was afraid to. Miles away from the farm, we found him. I called the police, and when they came, I told them as much as I knew. Ebba refused to speak to them, though. She took you in her arms and walked away from the whole scene. That morning was just as cold as the night had been. But she wore far too little, not that she seemed to notice. Nor did she notice when her hat fell off or that you soon started crying. No, she simply stood at the edge of the road and looked out across the frozen fields, clutching you tight while you bawled and bawled. As I led her back to the car, her face seemed carved in marble, white, hard, and cold. Grandmother paused. Kaisa, dear, are you sure you want me to go on? It's such a dreadful story. No, please, she replied softly. Kaisa felt somewhat like marble herself, numb and still, unsure of whether or not to trust her own ears. So many questions flooded her head, and she felt that she should be angry or upset or something but she felt nothing except confusion. The wind had picked up and began again to build, competing for her attention. Her head seemed empty, and every little noise, every flicker of the candle, every word from grandmother fought to fill it. I still want to know. The old woman sighed. <sighs> I figured. Well, your mother didn't speak to me for the rest of that day, and she never went to sleep during the night. She sat by your cradle upstairs and moved only to feed or change you. I came in every now and then to check on you both, to ask if there was anything I could do. But she simply sat there and stared at the wall, almost through it, through it and over the snowdrifts and all the way to that ditch where he had collapsed in the night and fought the cold until he could fight no more, until that cold heart of his finally froze solid. I don't think I saw my daughter that night. She sat in the cottage, but her mind was elsewhere. I once took her hand during that day, and it was cool to the touch. I feared that you could no longer fight off the winter chill for her, and with Carl gone, well, I didn't know what else could. She loved that man, no matter how wretched he was. Ebba saw something in him that I never could, but it seeped into her just like his poison had taken hold of the land. It snuck inside her brain, inside her heart, and when he died so suddenly, the pieces of her that were now his died too. Hence the hollow look and the hands and face like stone. The next day, she hardly moved and hardly ate. As the second night after Carl's death began to fall, I sat at this very table with my knitting. Then I heard Ebba's footsteps banging down the stairs, a jarring break from the day's silence. She ran through the room toward the window where the wind softly spoke. Ebba, I said quietly. She smiled, a bittersweet grimace aimed at the swirling darkness and slithering gusts of snow above the ground. You hear it, don't you? It's just the wind. It's speaking. It's him, Mom. He just needs me to come help him, and then we'll be back together again, all three of us. I stood carefully and approached her. You've heard this land for years, I told her. It's only ever been kind to you. It's not been kind to Carl, Ebba snapped. It hasn't been kind to him since he got here. So I'll find him and take Kaisa and we'll leave the farm. We'll go back to the cities. Carl said it himself. No one should live in this place. I knew then that I was right. She was no longer my daughter, picking flowers and watching the stars. 
and the land knew it too. I shook my head. The land is kind, Ebba, to those who are kind to it first. And Carl was a monster. And then she was gone. Ebba flew out the door and into the field, barefoot and calling out to the wind, which coiled around her like serpents and carried her over the ground. The frozen earth cut her feet as she ran, and the wind bit at her skin and hissed in her ears. She was gone, but Ebba herself had already left us earlier when she stood on the side of that road and clutched you to her chest. The land took what it thought rightfully belonged to the land. Her body was never found. Kaisa stood and grabbed her coat. The gusts outside swelled and the draft worsened. The candle flickered, danced, and faded suddenly into a wisp of smoke. I have to go. The frail woman pulled herself out of her chair. Kaisa, dear, I can't take the farm. I can't stay here. I have to go. But dear, I'm leaving, she yelled. I can't stand the cold or the isolation or the wind anymore, especially not after what this place has done. She threw open the door and took a step outside. The wind howled and squirmed. It slinked and slithered and coiled around her. It pierced her skin with ice and ripped the breath from her lungs as suddenly she felt a hand, just as cold, grip her wrist. Gasping, she whirled and saw grandmother behind her, eyes wide in fear. The wind cried out in a distant, echoing voice. Help me, Kaisa. Mom, I'm here. All you have to do is help me, please. The darkness closed in on the little red cottage in the thicket, and the warmth left its hearth. The sign clattered above the door, swinging and clamoring about the spot where it hung. The wind circled the farm and, like the snake, squeezed tight, drowning out the drum of life that beat within Eve's chest. The land is kind, read the sign. The land is kind. That was Huntsville Literary Association Young Writers Contest winner Calvin Ingstrom. His story was inspired by a sleepless night spent in Minnesota. He recently graduated from James Clements High School, and he hopes to attend Georgetown University this fall. Thanks again to Calvin, David Spiller, CEO of Huntsville Hospital, and co-producer of the NPR series White Lies, Andrew Grace, for being on the show. Find this and other episodes of the Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org and on our mobile app. Also on our website, find links to Huntsville Hospital's COVID data updates, plus a page diving deep into the story covered in White Lies on this episode's page. Tune into the Public Radio Hour Thursday nights at 7 here on 89.3 FM HD1. We'll be glad to have you back next week. Cafe Bandwagon is coming to Huntsville. Low Mill Arts and Entertainment Studio 1062 is transforming into a nonprofit cat lounge called Caddy Shack. We focus on rescuing shelter cats and provide a resource for cat adoptions in Huntsville. Space in the cat lounge is limited, so reservations are recommended. Information's online at CaddyShackHuntsville.org. That's C-A-T-T-Y, CaddyShackHuntsville.org, and on social media at CaddyShackHSV.